Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Beats of the Market podcast. I'm Ed Martin. Thanks for waiting again for the delays. I know it's been a little chaotic with the release schedule. I am coming back from Berlin. It's an amazing city. If you haven't been, you should absolutely check it out. There's one half of the city. It's a bit like what it would look like if you put millions of people on a bus stepped on the accelerator and just threw the steering wheel out. Chaotic, colorful, friendly, an incredible time. Another side that's rich and fast moving and efficient. Anyway, it'll be a fun episode today. Let's dig right into it. It is Sunday, November 6th. We are recording episode 19 of the Beats of the Market podcast. On today's episode, I will be covering a book that I just finished called Change Your Schedule, Change Your Life. It was a very fun, interesting, and also a bit of a cheesy book about dieting, body types, sleeping types, the optimal sleep times and exercise based on body types and just kind of blending all of those together. I will cover that a bit more towards the end. I will also be introducing the book which I'm reading now. Actually, that's wrong. I introduced it in the last episode and I'll be just kind of covering a little bit more of it and then I'll go ahead and introduce the third book which I just received. So, quite a nice little library I've built up here. On today's episode, I'm not going to be focusing so much on the indexes. I'm going to be looking more at the economic data, the valuations, premiums. I'll be looking at housing markets. We will dig into India, which is a fascinating type of case study, in my opinion, that was put on my radar by a prior hedge fund manager. And I will be looking at some developments in the UK from the industrial point of view. As usual, you can expect some sort of energy coverage, not anything too crazy. And I'm just going to talk to points from Jerome Powell at his recent meeting, which seemed to shock the U.S. a bit. I'm not sure why I think that was expected. Or if you've been listening to this podcast, then it was certainly expected. I will talk about where I think things are going forward from here. Just a quick little blimp. We have one in six U.S. households that are now behind on electricity payments. The U.S. looks to be following what's happening in Europe. That's kind of an interesting trend because where COVID started, if you look at that map, economically, the repercussions are following the places that it hit first. Now, that's a kind of simplistic view of it. Obviously, the countries that are more politically unstable or have higher debt levels are getting hit harder, particularly those with higher wealth inequality or dollar-denominated debts in emerging markets. It is a trend that is moving towards the U.S., and we are starting to see signs of 
scarcity in energy markets in the U.S., particularly in New England, which is an interesting case because Meredith Angwin in her book, Shorting the Grid, talked about how New England almost completely ran out of power during the dead of winter, which would have been a, I don't know if you can call that a humanitarian crisis, but it would have been a disaster. And now it looks like some of her points are coming back. I also quoted Meredith in a discussion on Twitter just a few days ago, and she thanked me for getting her involved in the conversation. So it was very nice to be able to just have this kind of, you know, basically just her saying thank you, but putting her work and her research on the map. We have the bonds, which we've talked about, which are basically just have been obliterated. The U.S. long-term returns for U.S. Treasuries are now at a 50-year low. Quite impressive, the damage that has happened to those bonds. That is what happens when you raise interest rates. The principal comes down and your interest payments go higher. One thing I thought was fascinating was I don't know if you remember me talking about a book. It was, I believe, the book from three weeks ago. There's been so many of them, it's kind of hard to keep up with it. But The World for Sale, there was a commodity group in that book called Glencore. And they have just been ordered to pay 276 million pounds over penalties related to government bribes. This is fascinating because when I brought this book up and I said, and I actually asked somebody this weekend, said, can you name a famous commodity trader? And they said, no. They don't even know what that is. And it just kind of goes to speak to the whole oddness of them that they're under the table, they're delegating, they're making these government decisions, they're changing the course of history. And then here's this company named in the book. And just a few days ago, they get slapped with a 276 million pound fine for finding for bribing governments. And I guarantee that was related to some sort of commodity trading. Maybe it was front-running trades or lying tax evasion. Who knows? But um, I just thought that was interesting. Another point that we had was the Americans with the highest credit card delinquency rates are 18 to 29 years old. That was a point that I brought up in a previous episode. I just want to tag on to that. They are 76% higher, uh, have higher credit card delinquency rates. And with this combination of higher mortgages, the average mortgage payment is now 38% of household income. So the combination of higher credit card rates for this demographic, in addition to first-time home buyers that are now paying nearly 40% of their, their monthly income, it's an interesting trend that deserves to be followed. I'll just cover the FOMC meeting, which was Jerome Powell, Central Bank for the US, coming out. And there was something like a 95% probability of a 75 basis point hike. I don't know why the market was shocked by this. It, it felt like everybody was trying to front run the trade and that there would be a pivot. There was a lot of hopes and dreams that the U.S. would stop being so aggressive with its rate hike policy. And it was just the opposite. I mean, it was poetry. It was fantastic. Jerome Powell, I got to give it credit to this guy because I know I have talked a lot of trash about them. But sticking to his guns and saying, we're going higher for longer. We are going to get the interest rate over inflation, we are not moving our policy stance purposely until we see inflation return to 2%. Now, it's highly unlikely that inflation will return to 2% within the next five or six years, but it doesn't matter because he's keeping a, a strong stance and he's not allowing this inflation 
to really come back nasty in asset prices. At first, the markets are flat, and then he makes these comments. And during the presser was when he really showed his teeth. He had these questions, and people were asking him just kind of asinine questions, to be honest. And um, he said, we're going to continue significant reduction of the balance sheet. So that's quantitative tightening. So government, you know, selling bonds. And they're going to continue their policy stance purposefully. And if they need to do consecutive 75 basis point hikes, they will. And they said they have work to do. So he is basically saying they have work to do. They are still here. They are in the fight. And the market just tanks like three percent, I think nearly four percent, at least three. And I don't know. I don't know why I don't. I, it was expected. And honestly, from here, I would expect another 50 uh, or at least another 75 basis point hike. If they move to 50, in my opinion, that would be a mistake. It's just allowing too much slack in the system. They need to get positive real rates. And although Jerome Powell in his book, Trillion Dollar Triage, which is another book we covered, fantastic book, talks about how the U.S. government responded to the COVID pandemic, he said Stanley Druckenmiller was a voodoo economist and didn't pay much credence to what he says. But I find that very interesting because Stanley Druckenmiller said that inflation has never subsided when it was over 5% and the central interest rate or the federal funds rate, the central banking interest rate was beneath it. So basically what he's saying is to get this under control, you're going to need to go to 5.5 five or, five or, or even 6%. And Powell made a comment that if he needed to go to 5%, he would. He wants to get it over core inflation. And I wonder if maybe he's starting to think differently about what some of these people have said. Now, Stanley Druckenmiller made that comment about the 5%, but that's not entirely true. It came down in the 1920s. So in the 1920s, inflation was over the central bank interest rate, but we all knew, know how the, um, how the 1920s ended, basically in disaster in the Great Depression. So they are not trying to recreate that scenario, which was the opposite of the Arthur Burns Fed, that was a Fed that was too aggressive for too long once the inflation came down and then they had horrendous deflation. But it just goes to show that they're playing catch up. This is an exposure of how bad the initial policy mistake was that they have to consecutively raise interest rates 75 basis points four times. It's a huge mistake that is in itself admitting that it was created. Let's bounce over to American energy levels real quick and some recent developments in New York. New York Harbor diesel prices hit 200 a barrel equivalent. That was actually equivalent to 150 barrel for crude at historical spreads. And that should really just be considered a warning sign to New England that they are starting to see signs of scarcity in those product markets. Diesel is really the heart of the U.S. economy and many other economies. It is used for trucking. It is how you get things to the grocery store and just about everywhere else. It is significantly embedded in the supply chain. It is a sign that refining capacity needs to be rapidly improved or there could be some serious problems going forward from here. That has also been reflected in the market. The energy sector has outperformed the S&P by 70 percent 
And it goes to show that smart investors have realized there's a shortage of energy infrastructure, whether that's energy and production or drilling infrastructure, chemical needs. Most of those sectors have been really hot and some of them are still trading at ridiculously low multiples. And this also speaks to our last episode where I covered the stagflationary historic returns and energy and oil were the top performing assets during that time. Interesting when you look at those things and how history tends to repeat itself. In another episode, I also said this is the stage where the rats are jumping ship. And the Wall Street Journal has come out and released an article reporting from an SEC top accountant that there is heightened fraud risk amid recession. So he's put out a fraud warning. To drill this point in just a little bit more, there's a book called Manias, Panics, and Crashes. And one of the pieces in there says, as the monetary system gets stretched, so that's the growth of the money supply in combination with higher interest rates, institutions lose liquidity and unsuccessful swindles seem to be revealed. The temptation to take money and run becomes virtually irresistible. And that is exactly what this SEC accountant is speaking to. And also to my point that the rats are jumping ship. As these borrow rates go higher, they know that they can't possibly survive because it's just a numbers game. And you start to see all of that excess come out of the system. And some of it has to be fraudulent. Some of it is swindles and crooks that have been able to game the system and it's like this quote from warren buffett when the tide finally goes out you get to see who's swimming naked on our next point here let's dig into europe we've covered the u.s bit we covered the recent rate hike cycle I've said that I think another 75 basis point hike is necessary and also on the table. I will cover those probabilities in a later episode. This strong response and sell-off in the market does not make the market's case for a Santa rally look good, especially with our consumer savings rate going down and these numbers that I just gave you on mortgage cost. And I am also doing a bit of research on my own, just looking at foreclosure markets through a website called HubZoo, which is owned by a company called Altasource Portfolios, a Luxembourg mortgage company that basically makes money off of foreclosed auctions and higher uh, home, like quick sales and short sales and so on. So full disclosure, I do have a position in that company and I think it's an interesting asset light counter way to play the housing. I'm not going to call it a housing collapse because you don't really know how bad the housing market can perform until you really see those home costs come down. And we are really starting to see signs of a slowdown in housing, which is another topic that I will cover a little bit later. Let's just jump into, into some of these companies that are going into layoffs. So there's a very, very cool website called layoffs.fyi. 
It is featured on a number of different news sources, including Business Insider and CNN, and you can track layoffs globally through there. It is a wonderful tool for everything data related to layoffs. Uh, so we had Stripe announce a 14% layoff of their team. We have had the corporate giant Apple pause all hiring except research and development. And so as these freezes come in and they're no longer hiring or they're pausing all hiring, that is putting an end to the price wage spiral. So wages won't go up if companies are no longer hiring. And really, it's just about as simple as that. So let's jump into Europe. Also, I just wanted to speak just one more point to the layoffs here. I went through that website and I wanted to see where the damage was. And I can tell you that a ton of companies and layoffs are happening in San Francisco, London, New York, Sydney, Toronto, and LA were some of the names that were quite frequent. Berlin, a little bit, not quite as bad. But this would make sense to our previous episode where we were talking about one in four office buildings in San Francisco being vacant. Huge, huge pressures there for the state and also the energy cost in California. California's energy policy is a whole nother episode. I could probably spend an hour just talking about that, but it is uh, snowballing. So I would, uh, if you're interested in tracking layoffs and seeing where the puck is going, that website, layoffs.fyi, is a fantastic resource for, for everything in that space. Let's tie some of those knots in a bow here. We have diesel costs rapidly increasing on the futures curve, which is going to put upside pressure to CPI. That's why I'm thinking those 75 basis points, uh, 75 BP hikes are necessary. We also have higher rent costs now. So the owner's equivalent rent component of CPI, which Jerome Powell also addressed. He said, we know how this works. We are looking at it. We understand that it is perhaps leading a bit and don't need to act too aggressively on that, but that is going to lag. And so I think that actually puts significant pressure in the next CPI print. And if you see an increase in CPI where we have 10% wage growth, the ADP job adjusted wage growth, um, job yeah, wage growth for jobs in the US was 7%. That's very high. That is not a number they want to see. And if it comes out over the winter where you have, you know, seasonal workers in demand, and you have 10% wage growth, and you still have this uh, OER component of CPI coming in high, and there's a risk of upside for the CPI print, that is really going to just wreck the market. And that just brings it closer to my target of 3000 going forward here. Also remember that historically, once inflation is over 8%, it takes about two years before it gets down to, to six, before it falls beneath six. And once it's there, it takes about five years to settle for it to, to move under. And that is just wildly different than the consensus out there. We're hearing from central bankers saying, yeah, we're going to get it to two. We're going to get it to three. I'll tell you right now. No, they're not. Just based on the historical statistics of this, we are probably going to have five to six or seven percent inflation for a good five or six years. And we'll be very, very lucky if they can get that to four or three, or they just change how it's calculated. I've heard, I think somebody even asked Powell at the meeting if he would consider changing the inflation target to three or four. 
I can't remember if that was it was a quote, but it was something that was brought up and they basically said absolutely not. At least that was what I was covering in the meeting notes. No hope that you're going to have your country uh, increase the inflation targets, at least for the U.S., which is good because it discredits the institution and it just creates more problems. Two percent is reasonable Four or five percent. Forget it. It's it's just too much to live with. I'm looking at a list of countries, central bank rates. China has cut their their interest rates. They have a 3.6% central rate with, I mean, I, if you can really trust these numbers, it's something like 2% inflation. So they have a real positive interest rate. Saudi Arabia has hiked to 4.5%. That gives them a 1.4% real rate, if you can trust that number. Uh, Mexico here has moved their central bank to 9.2% with a 0.6% real interest rate. And Brazil is at 13.7% with a 6.6% real rate. And that is 7.2% core inflation subtracted from the 137 to give you a 6.6% real rate. And so those are really the four only countries in the world at least from this list of about 35 or 40 that I'm looking at that have real interest rates. I'm sure there's a couple of other ones that exist out there. I just you know haven't seen them. And that makes for an interesting case for investing. Now, I was previously invested in China. And if China moves on Taiwan and you own their assets, then there's a chance that your broker or your country will freeze your assets because you're funding an, an enemy of, uh, you know, of, of your country. I made this mistake with two Russian companies. I mean, mind you, they were small bets, but I had Sparebank because it was just a ridiculously cheap asset with a huge dividend yield. And then I had a holding in MBT, the Russian telecommunication company. And I was just a bit stupid and naive when they, when they made their move. And it just became completely uninvestable. And I and see a situation where the same thing plays out for China. And I'm really hoping that doesn't play out, but it is a risk that I don't want to have to deal with. But if you believe in cheap valuation and you're not bothered by the VIE structure, which is the variable interest equity, this is something like they set up a shell company in the Cayman Islands and the profits of those companies are funneled through the variable interest equities and you're basically just owning a shell company. So the ownership of it for Americans, or at least for, for other you know, people, it can be very questionable. And I also have a problem with that. If you are okay with the VIE structure, I would do some research and understand what a VIE is. And you're okay with the geopolitical risk. And you understand that the valuations are at record lows for a reason, then you could probably take one or 2% bets and make a killing. Another alternative might be to own the shares through the Chinese markets directly so that you are not owning the VIEs if something were to happen. To each their own, it, it's a, a level of risk that you have to adjust. And it's, you know, in the case of Russia, you can't even price in that geopolitical risk because it takes your assets to zero if they're frozen. So that was what happened to me. And I was just sitting up here kind of like, you know, looking like an idiot. But um, yeah, everyone has different risk tolerance levels. So 
do your own due diligence and understand risks when you're going into foreign markets. Let's move over to Europe here. We had France, their largest glass manufacturer, Duralex, is suspending six months of operations due to surging energy costs. They have had their electricity and gas costs go from 3 million to 13 million euros. That was 46% of the company's turnover. And as you see industrial production slow down, expect more and more shortages. So shortage of glass, shortage of you know, certain chemical, ammonia, everything tied to gas and electricity costs suddenly start to stagnate. And that plays into the stagflation thesis. We also had Wintershall DEA and OMV announce a joint rig charter with the Swiss company Transocean for the semi-submergible driller called Norge to drill 11 wells. That is planned for 2023 to 2027. Full disclosure, I do have a, a position in Transocean. It is a Swiss company that has been around since the 1920s. It was basically priced to go bankrupt, trading at roughly 25% of book value. And this speaks to what I said in the last episode, where you have these highly indebted companies that are successful turnaround stories. The interest rates go up, their bonds are subpar, they can buy back the debt, and you just get a load of torque in the asset, and they can explode, especially if you have what the world is short. So if Scandinavian countries or the UK or Japan need these rigs to get oil infrastructure or energy infrastructure online, and that is their ticket out of a energy crisis, then you are you know, essentially holding the golden goose, especially it trades. It doesn't even have a PE ratio because it's negative PE. So once you flip, then, then you're in it at, at one or two PE, and that's where you get those, you know, those value trades that are three, four, 500% returns. Anyway, that is just a position of mine, full disclosure, not investment advice, do your own research. That was one theme I'm looking at. I do like the, as I've said in previous episodes, the energy infrastructure space for some of these other renewable companies that I am, I wouldn't say renewable companies, but some of these high cost of capital, trendy ESG gimmicky names full of a bunch of charlatans that just want your money, their cost of capital goes up. And so it's more expensive for them to do business and they're trading in the nosebleeds for valuation. So you want to own something with a PE of 80 or PE of one. And that's where you can make big returns. So that's kind of how I've been navigating things. I wasn't sure on this episode if I would cover market navigation, but essentially what I did was, you know, I am short Apple, I'm short Tesla. I won't name all of those companies directly. I think Elon is in a fucking mess here, especially as he got himself into this Twitter deal. I think when the SEC accountant says fraud risk is out there, I've looked at Tesla's books. They look awfully suspicious to me, but you know I'm not in the SEC, so we'll see what they, they decide to care about. It's also the top holding of most ESG, environmental, social governance funds. But it's interesting to watch the narrative change around him. It has really become quite a bit more negative. So I was short, very frothy, valued companies. I have recently started a short on India, which I will discuss that position later. And 
I was long, I'm basically long commodities, long energy, short tech, and short overvalued names. And I'm hedging that with a high percentage of cash and a bit of physical gold. And I also have some uh, tips, some treasury inflated protection securities to ride this out a little bit. But everybody's situation is different not financial advice, do your own research, consult with a professional, all that good stuff. Let's move along with our piece here. We have the Financial Times reporting that property funds in the UK have dumped more than £1 billion on the London market to meet redemption requests. Real estate agents are saying that they will have to accept big discounts in order to sell these assets. While we're on the topic of the UK, I learned that country is the world's best debt repayer. They have defaulted the fewest times in history, only a few times in the Middle Ages, and they have very healthy levels of foreign reserves, and they are currently borrowing at negative interest rates. Just from the look of that and what that country has gone through, there might be an interesting case for a turnaround here. You get the they're the trash leaders out. They essentially crash the pension system due to their liabilities and leverage that's built into that system. And then the pound begins to recover. They have ample currency reserves. They're borrowing at negative real rates. So someone else is losing money, essentially. And it's kind of an interesting thesis. So I will be keeping an eye more on the UK. I'll be watching the pound a bit closer. They are going through their rate height cycle, too. And it's... Uh, it's a matter of hope that they have somebody competent in there to steer the ship. But let's bounce over to housing since we were talking about housing in the UK. On the US side of the house, the average, the typical home buyer in October paid 77% more on their loan per month than October of last year. That was according to Realtor.com. The average national asking price for a home is now $425,000 with a 10% down payment. If you put a loan on that, that equates to roughly 1,117 per month. Home contract signing fell for the fourth month in a row. It was down 31% from September of last year. And the Google search trends for a uh, for US housing bubble reached a 15 year high. Searches for that particular wording were most popular in Boise, Idaho where the average home cost is $550,000. That is a 51% increase from 2019. Also, data according to Realtor.com. And uh, analysts looking at this data are saying they wouldn't be surprised to see a 20 to 30% drop in home prices. They haven't given a timeline for that, but that particularly speaks to the mountain regions of the U.S., the West, and the South. So when we were talking about California and those vacant buildings, and this you know, supply comes online, it is just a matter of time before some hot air is let out of the bubble. And I am starting to see more and more foreclosures on the HubZoo website, particularly in places like Phoenix, which speaking of Phoenix, the jump up in active listings year over year uh, can lead to these drops in prices. And Phoenix saw a 167% increase. Raleigh saw a 166% increase in active listings year over year. And Texas, Austin had 100, uh, 124. 
So quite some numbers to dig into there. Let's move on to our other segment and discuss one of my shorts and countries that I'm looking at, and I'll kind of explain the reasons for that. So we know that Russia is now India's largest oil supplier. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Iraq have boosted their crude oil shipments to China despite cutting their overall shipments, and Iran is expected to sign an energy agreement with with Russia's Gazprom. So why is that important, and how does India tie into this? Well, India is wildly energy dependent. They are very economically sensitive to changes in oil prices, particularly in crude. And I want to give a shout out to a fund manager who had, he's chosen to be anonymous. He has a Twitter handle called Contrarian8888. And he does really, really good research. He posts all of his research and all his sources. And so I was looking through his page and looking at some of this data and going through it. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, this is a really, this is an interesting thesis. And then I went out and I did research of my own. And I was just like completely, I don't know, just my mind was boggled by what I was finding in his content there. And so India is very interesting because it's at a two standard deviation high for its valuation. The market globally has been selling off. India has just been a complete bubble. And the combined valuations to verse history back to 1995, this puts the average Z-score for price to book, price to earnings ratio, and the dividend yield. It puts India as the most expensive in history. So if we're looking at the Z-scores, I can give you some reference here. Brazil is minus 2.3. Poland is minus 2. South Africa is a little bit less than that. And then India has 1.2, has a PE of 21. So price to earnings is 21. And, you know, Turkey is, has a, a PE of 4.7 for pretty obvious reasons. And so when you're looking at a global map of valuations, this is a, a very interesting way to approach investing. You look at historical valuations. Doesn't matter about the cash flows and so on. You can figure that stuff out later. Just figure out the historical valuations and, and that will give you an idea of the behavioral finance aspect of the, the bubble, like the bubble nomics. In India, when I'm looking at, I mean, some of these things have PEs of 200 or 300 and are just being completely propped up by mutual funds. So what's the catalyst that's going to pop the bubble? So we have spoken that it's sometimes interest rates. Well, when the SPR sales end, so when the U.S. Strategic Petroleum, the Strategic Election Reserve is, uh, is basically dry and they can't make any of those sales anymore, and then you have China reopening because they can't do this COVID lockdown thing forever. They're going to have, you're going to have the largest economy in the world coming online for energy demand. And that, that surplus or that glut of, of oil that's sitting in Russia is going to go almost undoubtedly to China and India is going to be left out in the dry. And so let me give you some numbers here. This is also according to a um, data facts set from Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research, and they were tracking correlation of energy prices to economic data in India. And so for every $10 increase per barrel of oil, 
Indian GDP loses 0.2%, CPI increases 0.3%, and MSCI India growth loses three whole percentage points. Not only that, but MSCI India versus the MSCI Asian markets, which I know are going through some things, are at an 89% premium. That is a nearly two standard deviation outside the norm. That is completely nuts. So what you have here is you have a country that has been bubbled up to high heavens based on strong demographics and growth. And it's always about the story, right? The story is great. The story is great. The valuations don't make any sense like some of these other names. And then you have a catalyst here where if China comes online and they come online quickly, especially if they're playing economic warfare with the U.S., where they can really fuck with them by creating bullwhips in the supply chain and, and basically bidding on that, that global oil market because the price of oil is set globally, then I just, I, I could see, so we're at, what, 90 a barrel now? And we just had a rumor that China was going to open and crude jumped $4. Then you have these shortages of diesel in the U.S. So there's obviously a ton of, uh, you know, demand is starting to outstrip the supply. So let's say that oil gets to 120. You ha you're starting to talk some pretty big numbers here where the MSCI index starts losing 12, 16, 20 percent. Or if you have a outlier where it goes up to 150 or there's some sort of black swan or another geopolitical conflict, God forbid, then this thing could get cut in half. It's like the, the one domino that's still kind of there. So I think it's an interesting thesis. So I launched a couple short positions based on that. You know, don't go out and, and coattail me into these trades. That's an idea based on another uh, prior fund manager's idea. But I, I really like probability of that. And I also see the upside risk for, for energy prices going higher here. And based on the stagflationary returns and historical models going back to similar times, I wouldn't be surprised to see oil at 120. So what could happen here is the U.S. forces a really nasty recession and you, you get the reincarnation of Paul Volcker, maybe a double-dip recession, something really nasty like between you know, the 80s and you get oil down to maybe 70 or 80. And that's assuming you're running everything. Your, 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 the Eagle Ford Basin, the Bakken Basin, and Texas are at full blast. The refineries have come online. There's no divestment from, from energy infrastructure in the U.S. And you've got all these oil rigs and deep sea drillers activated. But then you still have this huge economy coming online. And so they're left out to dry. So that is the thesis, and we'll see how that plays out. Let's check back in a year. Remember, I also have a um, post-split adjusted stock price of Tesla around 50. That is my price target. That is basically napkin math on relative valuation compared to Ford and some other companies that are great. Now, mind you, you know Ford has like one or two cars that kill people, and they recall the whole thing. And Tesla you know, sells the full self-driving. It's like illegal in Europe and not in the US, but you know they just keep going along with it. I just think that the music is going to come to an end and, um, and that's just what we know about. I can only imagine what 
possibilities are, are under the table that we don't know about. I mean, VW, for God's sake, they were investigated for putting a trick device on their diesel emitters. And you've got fucking Teslas driving around with car doors that won't open when they catch on fire, burning people alive. I mean, it is like really just mind boggling. So those are some of the ideas there. I will be keeping an eye on India GDP levels and to see what type of price sensitivity I see in energy markets related to them and their corporate earnings. We'll have to revisit that in a year and see how that trade did. So the last part of this episode I'm going to talk about is the third book that I have lined up. In the beginning of the episode, I said I was reading Mega Threats from Noriel Rubini, and the book, I'm going to try and finish Mega Threats this week. It's turned out to be very, very interesting so far. I really like how he has framed everything. You can tell he has a fantastic understanding of economics and geopolitical currents. The next book I'm going to read after that is called The Invisible Hands by Stephen Drobny. He's the CEO of Drobny Global Asset Management, an independent investment advisory and consulting firm based on global macro and commodity hedge fund strategies. So this kind of goes more into our commodity and macro style investment ideas, just to tie up with those two other brilliant economists and their ideas. And also what I've said that active macro management is probably going to be what outperforms here. And I'm thinking that outperforms for the next five or six years. The book covers the top hedge funds, navigating bubbles, crashes, and making substantial money off a number of different trades. So it's kind of all of these different ideas from smart people in different environments and where they got their ideas and how they were able to navigate these different environments. I like having that type of experience and just reading about it and kind of trying to be imagine being in you know in the uh the the meeting room with them when they're going over these these pitches or these ideas and i think it it's always just adding a bit more tools to your arsenal to understand how to navigate different situations so the book that i covered which was change your schedule change your life it was very interesting. So he was a medical doctor with a touch of uh, inspiration from India. And yeah, I'm probably not happy that I'm shorting his, his market. The main theme is to understand body types, sleep patterns, food and exercise style per person, and then weight those in with statistical averages of what's best per person. There's a few points in there. It's quite a lot. I think it's worth a read, but I'll give you a couple small points here. Your biggest meal of the day should be lunch and then dinner should be smaller. In order size, it should be breakfast is small, not enormous. Lunch is huge. Dinner's just a bit of a little bit bigger than a snack. And optimal sleep time statistically are 1030 at night, getting up at six, working out in the morning if you can. That's the best time to be active. And then cutting off electronics by eight because your brain is already producing melatonin by then. The book put a heavy emphasis on the different biochemicals in your body and how they regulate dietary sleep and exercise functions. For example, the idea of cortisol, 
the stress hormone and how that is generated throughout the day. And it peaks in the morning and throughout the day, it consistently drains off. So the idea is that by working out in the morning, you're burning off this cortisol in a natural, healthy way. So that's it for this episode. It has been very fun. We covered housing markets. We covered energy prices and how those can affect foreign markets. My short thesis, which is stolen from a hedge fund manager. And I'm going to hope that works. Looking at different macro data for Europe, the UK, and the US. This new book, The Invisible Hands, I am reading Mega Threats now from Noriel Rubini. I will cover that hopefully on the next episode. And I have to get some new book ideas, and I have no idea what I'm going to read, but I'm excited about it. The library is growing. I have a couple other books, but I've just read so many. So I'm not sure if I would cover those uh, older books that I've read or reread them, perhaps. I have some fantastic books here, but maybe it's just a better idea to get some new ones. Anyway, for production, I'm not sure where it's going to go. I'm just going to wing it. It has been quite busy. I'm still getting into the groove of things. And what a blessing to be able to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the inspiration. Much love to my friends in Berlin and around the world. Thank you for everything. is for entertainment purposes only nothing i say should be construed as investment advice and some of the securities i talk about may be actively held